Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we do believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. We do believe that you are the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, I pray right now that you would be with us as we open your living and active word. God, we need to hear from you. There's so many other voices in our ears. There's so many other ways of this world and the flesh and our enemy that are trying to influence us, Lord. God, I pray that you would silence every distraction and every deception, Lord, and that we would hear your truth speak to our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would be with my mouth, Lord. I pray, God, that you would protect me from error. I pray that you would allow me to speak that which is healthy, that which is sound for the building up, for the edification of the saints and for the evangelization of the lost. Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak powerfully for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Just a quick show of hands. Uh, anyone out there this morning competitive? Yeah, some of you are like, oh, I get my hand up first for sure. Did you see that? I was the first one to put my hand up. How, how about, do any of you struggle with comparing yourselves? Hands up, struggle if you, if, 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 hands up if you struggle comparing yourself with others. You're like, I don't know if I'm gonna put my hand up. I wanna see who else is putting their hand up first. And then I'll put my, my hand up. Uh, a competition and uh, comparison. It's part, of, it's part of everyday life, isn't it? Uh, competition is not just about Monopoly 21 checkers and chess. It's, it goes far deeper, doesn't it? And uh, comparison is, is something that all of us do just about every day. We size ourselves up based on the other people uh, at work or the other people in the room or the other people in our uh, family. Uh, at, at the core of competition and comparison it, it, is, is pride. And pride reveals that there's this breakdown. Because, we, because as sinful human beings, we don't look to God, we look elsewhere. We look to other human beings and we compete against them. We compare ourselves uh, with them. Listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say about comparison. He said, pride is essentially competitive is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. We all in favor of having pride rooted out in our lives? Pride is the root of all kinds of evil. How do we remove pride? How do we remove the element of competition that so often enters into our everyday lives? It comes through seven beautiful words spoken by John the Baptist in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must 
decrease. Turn your Bibles uh, to John chapter 3 if you don't have a Bible or ushers are coming up and down the aisle and they'd love to help you uh, out with that. We're going to be looking at a story in the life of John the Baptist and John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way for Jesus' arrival. He was a miracle baby in his own right, born to uh, elderly uh, parents and he leapt in the womb when, uh, when when he was in utero and when Jesus was, uh, was in utero, he went out into the wilderness and started baptizing people, preparing them that Jesus was coming. And by the time we get to John chapter 3, uh, Jesus' ministry is, is fully functioning and people are now flocking towards him and, and they are no longer crowding around John the Baptist. And some of John's disciples took issue with this. So we pick up the story in John uh, chapter 3, verse 22. I'm going to read down to verse 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The key to living a life free from comparison and competition, the key of putting to death pride in our lives, which is at the root of all of this, is to live a life of humility. And John is a beautiful example of what it means to live with humility, to live free from the tyranny of competition and a comparison. In, in today's text, we're going to see uh, three things that John does to, to help us uh, live lives of humility. Here's the first one. It's, it's a warning, a warning to beware of envy. It's a warning to beware of envy. Uh, verse 22 and, and 23 sort of set the geographical context. That it, it lets them know where all of this was happening. That Jesus was, and his disciples were baptizing. We know from John chapter 4 verse 2, it wasn't actually Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples were doing it on his behalf. And they were baptizing relatively close uh, in proximity to John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist's disciples couldn't help but notice that as the days went by, less and less people were, were becoming part of John's congregation and more and more people were following Jesus and, and listening to his teaching. 
And there was some sort of controversy in verse 25. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And then that sparked this conversation that John's disciples have with John. It says, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan and to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They said, John, I mean, you're the one that bore witness about this guy, and now everyone is going to him, but no one would have known it was him without, without paying attention to you first. And now people need to keep paying attention to you, John. This, is, this isn't fair. This isn't right. John's disciples are struggling with, with really what happens when we give in to competitiveness and to comparison. They're struggling with envy. Envy is resentment and disappointment towards an advantage enjoyed by another person. Resentment and disappointment towards an advantage enjoyed by another person. They were looking over here at their dwindling number of people that were following John, and they're looking over at Jesus, who's just increasingly popular, and they resent his popularity, and they're disappointed that so many people are going to him. They're experiencing envy. Notice the exaggeration. They say all are going to him. Well, it can't be all because they're still there. <laughs> and by the way, that was John's whole point, right? He told people, behold the Lamb of God. Yeah, you're, you're done with me now. Go, go, follow, go follow him. John's whole purpose was to prepare the way for him. But his disciples had lost sight of that. See, envy blinds us. Blinds us to what's really happening. All people were not going. And and they, 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 they had forgotten, they had lost sight of why John came and what the purpose of his ministry was. You see, envy and pride are closely related. One of the early church fathers said that, that, that pride gives birth to envy, that, that envy is, is the progeny of, of pride. You see, pride convinces us that we're in a, a competition. That's what pride does. We got it, it's all about us, and it's about how we measure up to other people. So pride gets us in the game. Envy is how we feel when we're losing the game. So they're, they're, they're interrelated. You can't have envy without having pride. Pride comes first, gets you into the game, makes you think that you need to compete and compare, but then envy is how you feel when you fall short. Arrogance and boasting is how you feel when you're winning. But envy is how you feel when you're losing. So we've got to beware of envy. We can envy people for a number of reasons. You can envy someone because of the money that they have, the car that they drive, the clothes that they wear. You can envy someone because of their popularity, like in this instance, in the social media era, how many, how many people are friended or how many people are following a certain uh, person. You can feel envy over someone's popularity. You can feel envious about someone's marriage and the relationship that they enjoy, that you long for, whether you're single or married. You can be looking at what someone else has. You can be envious of someone's ridiculously obedient children. And you can, you, you, you can just wonder and, 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 and feel envy about, about that. Don't take, it, don't take it personally, Ezra. I think you're doing a great job being obedient. You can be envious about someone's appearance. You can be envious about someone's talents and abilities and success. 
One, one thing that envy does is envy exposes idolatry, doesn't it? It shows us what we're really worshiping and what we really love. When we feel envy, when we feel that disappointment and that resentment, it shows us that we're worshiping that thing. We're worshiping money. We're worshiping popularity. We're, we're worshiping our appearance. Proverbs 14.30 says that envy makes the bones rot. Envy destroys you from the, from the inside out. In Galatians chapter 5, you know when, when the Apostle Paul lists that famous passage, the fruit of the Spirit, but before he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about the works of the flesh, and envy is one of them. Envy is at work inside each and every one of us. It is, it is part of our flesh that is warring against our soul. And envy is the opposite of love. 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage about love, Say it with me. Love is patient. Love is kind. And what comes next? Love does not envy. When you're busy comparing yourself to other people and competing against other people, there's no room for love. And we fall short of breaking the great commandment of loving God and loving our neighbor. Envy is so deadly and dangerous. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because of envy. What went wrong in Jacob's dysfunctional family? Two wives of four mothers, Leah and Rachel, envious of one another. And then what did that produce in the next generation? Joseph and his brother, his ten brothers. What did, why did they throw him in a pit and sell him to slavery? Because of envy. Envy destroys relationships. Envy, envy destroys families. Envy will destroy you. Envy makes the bones rot. Dorothy Sayers, in talking about uh, envy, the great writer and philosophy, points out that, that envy is not, it's not just wishing that you had something someone else had. It's also wishing that they didn't even have it in the first place. Dorothy Sayers says, envy is the great leveler. If it can't level things up, it will level them down. At its best, envy is a climber and a snob. At its worst, it is a destroyer. Rather than have anybody happier than itself, it will see us all miserable together. Is that not a prophetic? I mean, this was decades ago that Dorothy Sayers wrote this. Is that not a prophetic description of our generation? All miserable together. Because everyone else seems way happier than we are. Because we all struggle with envy. Now let's take a look at how John deals with this struggle. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This is what John does. John immediately takes his eyes off of the situation and he gets his eyes onto God. He doesn't even mention envy. He talks about God. The way to deal, listen, the, the reason why we have envy in our world today is because there's been a breakdown in our relationship with God. We shouldn't be competing against one another and comparing ourselves to other people because we should be thinking about God and He's the ultimate standard by which we judge ourselves. 
But because our relationship in the vertical has been broken down, then all our relationships on the horizontal are poisoned with envy. But look at what John says. He, he notes the, the sovereignty in God, of God in all of this. He says, no one's received anything unless it was given him from heaven. John says, everything that I have, all the people that came and heard me preach, even you, my disciples, who are still here, the only reason why I have you is because God has given it to me. And, and the only reason why Jesus' ministry is flourishing is because his Father is causing it to flourish. When we understand the sovereignty of God, when we look at what's happening in our lives and when we look at what's happening in someone else's life, we can actually give thanks and rejoice in what's happening because God gets the credit. Notice how he, he uses that word receive. A person cannot receive, and then he uses the word given. Loved ones, thankfulness is such a powerful weapon against envy. John knew what he had been given. And so he gave thanks. He knew that everything that he had, he had received. Loved ones, some of us need to stop thinking about what we don't have and start thanking God for what we do. To, to work the daily discipline of gratitude. Give thanks is a command that's repeated in Scripture. Why? God gives commands for our good. It is good for us to be thankful so that when we can say thankful for what we have and what God has provided, we lift our eyes up to God in gratitude rather than looking at the grass that seems greener on the other side and get filled with with envy. So we got to beware of envy. It is a deadly, deadly enemy. Then John says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Make note of this. If we're going to live lives of humility, first, yeah, we've got to beware of envy. And then secondly, we must understand our identity. We must understand our identity. John knows who he's not. We need to know who we are. We also need to know who we're not. He says, I am not the Christ. This is not about me. But notice how John doesn't say, sometimes we think that to live a life with humility, we need to walk around and say, oh, I'm nothing and I'm worthless. And, and that's not what John the Baptist says. He says, I am not the Christ. But listen, listen to the dignity with which he speaks about himself. I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He knows his identity. He knows that he has a role to play. And all of us have a role to play in God's kingdom. We're not the king, but we are citizens of heaven. And that is part of our identity. We are not the son of God, but we have all become adopted sons and daughters, haven't we? We are not perfect people, but we all have been justified by his grace and are being sanctified by his spirit. These would all be great times to say amen. I'm always in favor of a little bit of audience participation. We have this incredible identity. We used to be slaves to sin, and now we are slaves to righteousness. That's our new identity. Someone say amen. Amen. This is... We need to know who we are. We've got to know who we're not. 
But we got to know who we are. If we're going to live lives of humility, listen, C.S. Lewis famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And John understood his identity how, not as he was as a person. No, he understood his identity in terms of how he related to Jesus. I'm the one who goes before him. And all of us need to understand our identity in how we relate to Jesus. He's the king. I'm part of his kingdom. He's the son of God. I'm a son and daughter of God. He's the the perfect sacrifice. I'm the one who's justified by his free gift. We, We have this identity, but that identity is rooted in how we relate to Jesus. So beware of envy, and we've got to understand our identity. Keep, keep, keep reading here. He says in verse 21, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He uses a, a wedding uh, analogy. Daniel, can you come on up here? Daniel Bailey and Jan, can you come up here? You guys are getting married uh, in the near future. Congratulations. And uh, so come on up here. So are you guys getting married here? Is it going to happen here? Awesome. So you guys are going to be married here in this building, so take your positions, okay? And then, uh, Kaylin, can you come on up here? And uh, you just, I want you to hold my Bible. You're going to pretend to officiate. So Kaylin's in seminary. And so uh, this will be your practice run. And so come on up here, Kaylin. You go stand right here. You're going to officiate. And, uh, and then Avril, can you, can you come up here too? So you can be a, you can be a bridesmaid. And um, we're just going to take a this, is a, this is a, this is what a wedding looks like, right? This is what a wedding looks like in Western culture. And so uh, we know, so it's pretty clear, right? Avril is a bridesmaid, maid of honor. Here we have the, and the officiant. And here is the, okay. And so if I'm standing here, what does that make me? Okay, so this is my identity right now. Okay, so when I am doing what I'm supposed to do as a best man, I want you to cheer for me. Okay, so right now I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. So cheer. Okay, okay, that's good, just like that. When I get off track, I want you to boo, okay? So, so right now, how am I doing? Right? Thanks guys, thanks so much. You see, we all understand, listen, When you have the privilege of being a best man, you are best in title only. It's not about you. You ruin the wedding if you make it about yourself. And so John here uses this analogy to describe his identity. And again, remember, our identity is linked to how we relate to Jesus. He has the privilege of calling himself the friend of the bridegroom. And that Jesus called us friends. And our relationship to the bridegroom is everything. But listen, when we let pride and envy control our lives, we start to step in front of the groom just little by little. And then we try to eclipse the glorious Son of God. And we try to steal the glory from whom it actually belongs to. We've got to understand our identity. It's not about us. It's about him. But when John the Baptist spoke, he spoke with such weight and with such authority because he spoke as the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. 
prophets. And he was, able to, he was able to point to Jesus Christ and say, this is the fulfillment of everything that has been predicted in the past. And so there's, there's something significant here about what John the Baptist chooses to call Jesus. Remember back in chapter 1, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And how that, that statement, Lamb of God, was, was, was filled with all of this Old Testament meaning, going all the way back to Abraham and Isaac, and the sacrifice, and Isaac saying, where is the Lamb? And then all the way through to the Passover Lamb in Exodus, and the sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus, and, and, and then the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, who's led like a lamb to a slaughter. John the Baptist was able to say all the way back, all the way back to Isaac's question, where is the Lamb? John could say, behold the Lamb. There he is. And so now he says, Jesus is the bridegroom. The bridegroom, I mean, the whole book of Hosea is a, is a, is a living parable of God treating his, his unfaithful wife as a, as a bride and, and being remarried to her. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 talks about, about the people of Israel being a bride. All of these prophecies. Isaiah chapter 62, look at this on the screen, verses 4 and 5. You shall no longer be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And then notice this, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The Old Testament is filled with these examples of God rejoicing over his people like a groom on his wedding day. And when John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom, he's pointing to Isaiah 62 and Jeremiah 2 and, and to the whole book of Hosea. And he's saying, not just that Jesus is the bridegroom, what he's saying is that Jesus is God. That he is the one who has come to marry his people in covenant promise relationship. And John's words point back to uh, Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah. They point forward to Ephesians chapter 5 and Christ's love for the church being the whole purpose of marriage and Revelation 19 and the wedding supper of the Lamb. So John knows where he fits in the story, that he's the friend of the bridegroom, that he's in a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, who is the bridegroom, who has come for his bride, who performed a miracle at the wedding of Cana, and who in the very next chapter is going to interact with a Samaritan woman who was married multiple times. Marriage is all over these opening chapters of the Gospel of John. Jesus is the bridegroom. We've got to understand our identity. When we do that, then we say what John says here in verse 30. He must increase and I must decrease. This has to happen. If we're going to be free of envy, if we're going to be free of pride and competition and comparison, we must allow Christ to increase and we must decrease. Some of us have been, have been taught by false teachers that, that the idea is, is that if you bring Jesus in your life, you get to increase, and Jesus increases a little bit. 
You can increase in success, and you can increase in your, your money, and you can increase in your fame, and just bring Jesus into your life, and Jesus will help you increase. That's not how it works, guys. Jesus did not come so that you would increase. Jesus came so that you would decrease, so that Christ would increase. In every situation, every struggle, every decision, big or small, we should be asking ourselves, how can I get low here? And how can I make sure that Christ is lifted high? Every argument, every accusation, every trial, every tribulation, every, how can I decrease? And how can Christ increase? How can I get out of the way of the bridegroom? How can I decrease so that he can be put on display, so that he can increase? Envy comes from pride, which is focusing on yourself. But listen, the way to deal with pride is not just to focus on humility. You focus on humility, you just end up with a really twisted version of pride. You end up boasting about how humble you are. That's a fail. The way to truly become humble is not to pursue humility. The way to truly become humble is to pursue Jesus Christ. For you to decrease and for him to increase. And so then, in verses 31 to 36, we see Christ getting increased. We see Christ being exalted and lifted up. Now, uh, scholars kind of debate back and forth if if. Is John the Baptist still speaking in verses 31 to 36? Or is John the author, the disciple, is he sort of taking over as narrator, just kind of giving an annotated summary of, of what has just happened? Well, whether it's John the author or John the Baptist, that's, that's kind of uh, irrelevant. The point here is that these words exalt Jesus Christ. And if we are going to live lives of humility, we've got to beware of envy, we've got to understand our identity, and we must declare Christ's supremacy. We must declare Christ's supremacy. Look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He's above all. He's supreme. Why? Because he has come from above. He's above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He's John talking about himself. Listen, I'm just speaking in terms of, of earthly words. But listen, Christ speaks on a totally different level. He's above all because he has come from above. He who is from heaven is above all. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Everyone has lots of opinions about how to get to heaven. Everyone's trying to write a book or read a, or, or write a book or, or make a movie about, about what heaven is like. The one who can tell us what heaven is like is the one who has come from there. I could try to, you know, I could spend some time on Wikipedia and walk a couple of documentaries. I could try to tell you what, what it's like in the Philippines, but I've never been there. And if I tried to get up here and give a presentation of this is what it's like in the Philippines, some of the Filipino would be like, I'm from there. I could do the same thing with Nigeria or Ecuador or Sri Lanka or wherever. You can't speak with authority about a place unless you've been there, right? Jesus can speak with authority about heaven. All these religious leaders, all of these different world religions say, well, here's how to get to heaven. Jesus is the only one who says, well, I'm actually coming from there, so I, I can tell you how to get there. I, I, I not only know the way, I, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. This is why he's supreme, but then here's the, here's the tragedy at the end of verse 32, yet no one receives his testimony. Yet no one receives his testimony. Now, uh, no one uh, here, this, this can't, uh, this is sort of a hy- hyperbolic expression similar to John chapter 1. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well, some of his own received him. But the, the vast majority of his own did not receive him. And the vast majority of people do not believe the testimony that Jesus gives, even though he speaks authoritatively about heaven. He says what he saw and what he heard. Because that's where he's from. But then in verse 33, he talks about those whoever receives his testimony. So not everyone has rejected him. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. A seal is like a signature. It was like this wax thing that you would impress on a document to say, this is coming from me and this is true. And people who believe in Jesus, their whole identity is centered around him. They're signing off and saying, I believe that this is indeed true, that God is true. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus came from God. Jesus spoke the words of God. And God gave Jesus the Spirit without measure. All the Old Testament prophets and judges and other leaders, they would receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It would kind of come and go for different times or different circumstances. Go win that battle. Go speak to that person. The Spirit would come upon them, and then the Spirit would go. But the Spirit was poured on Jesus without measure. And guys, the amazing thing is, as you follow that theme throughout the New Testament, the Spirit has been poured on us as New Testament believers without measure. The abundance of the Spirit has been provided for us. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He's supreme. He has authority. Then verse 36 is very sobering. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son has not seen life, but the wrath of God remains on him. A wrath is not a word that's used too often in the 21st century church here uh, in North America. Uh, here it is. This is one of the reasons why we, why we teach through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. We just don't skip over the hard stuff. Wrath is the holy anger of God towards sin. Lots of churches and lots of people, they want to emphasize John 3.16, you know? For God so loved the world. And I'm so thankful for the way that Pastor Chris even talked about wrath when he was talking about John 3.16 last week. Because some people think, well, I, I mean, I, I want to believe in a loving God. I don't want to believe in a God of, of wrath. But the truth is, unless you have a God of wrath, you can't have a God who is loving. If you love someone or something, that will inevitably produce wrath in you. Think about all those precious little babies in the nursery right now. It's been a while since our kids were that small, but I was just having a conversation with a dear couple. um, And, you know, the father's just cuddling their, their, their newborn a baby. The parents love that little child. Therefore, if anyone, heaven forbid, but if anyone 
were to ever try to harm that little one in any way, what would those parents experience? Wrath. Stop that right now. Justice is needed. If necessary, punishment is needed. Retribution is needed. Why? It flows from love. If you are not filled with anger at the thought of someone harming a person that you love, you don't love them. God's love does not contradict God's wrath. God's wrath flows from God's love. God loves justice, so he is filled with wrath and anger at corruption. God loves purity, so he is filled with wrath at immorality. God loves the truth, so he has wrath towards lies and deception. God loves life, so he has wrath towards murder. Do you, do you follow? So John 3.16 does not contradict John 3.36. John 3.16 explains John 3.36. And when you understand everything that's been said about even the conversation with Nicodemus about the importance of being born again and Christ being lifted up on the pole, why was Christ lifted up on the cross like the bronze serpent in the book of Numbers? Because Christ bore the wrath of God that all of us deserve. So God is a God of love, which means he has to be a God of wrath. But because he is a God of love, he chose to pour out his wrath, not on me, not on you, but on his son. Now look at what it says here. It says that whoever believes in the son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, notice what it says, remains on him. The wrath of God, the anger towards sin, the, the justice of God is not something that we are waiting for in the future. It's not something that comes as a result of rejecting Jesus. It's actually the factory settings for every human being. We are all under the wrath of God. All of us are walking along wrath road. And there, there's no way off. There's no exit. There, there's no way to stop it. We are all moving. Every human being on planet Earth is on wrath road because of sinful things we've said, sinful things we've done, sinful things we've thought. And Jesus has come, as this verse says, offering life. So Jesus has made a way off. Notice, the road to destruction is wide and the road to life is narrow. But there is a road to life. But if you don't take that exit, if you refuse the as it says, if you refuse the offer that's been given to you, if you refuse to believe the testimony of the one who came from heaven to tell you how to get to heaven, it says it right here. The wrath of God remains on him. If you choose to miss that exit, there's no other exit. You're staying on wrath road. Don't stay on that road. Christ has suffered and died for you. 
Yes, God has wrath towards you because of your sin and wants to judge you for your sin, but he also loves you. That wrath flows from love, and that love sent his son to the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his son to bear the wrath of God for our sin. Do not miss this exit. Or else the wrath of God will remain on you. But let's take a look at what it means for us to take that exit. Looking closely at verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. Now that's surprising, isn't it? Wouldn't you expect it to say, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life? And wouldn't you expect it to say, Whoever does not believe in the Son? But it says, whoever does not obey. So the word believe, we've talked about this a bunch, appears 98 times in the Gospel of John. And every time we read it, we're supposed to sort of you know, stop and reflect. What, what, are we, what can we learn about what it means to believe in Jesus here? And so here we can learn that belief is not being contrasted with unbelief. Belief is being contrasted with disobedience. So if the opposite, just, you know, if the opposite of belief is disobedience, then you can equate belief with obedience. I, I had a conversation right here when we first began the series and we're talking about the centrality of belief. Someone came forward and they asked a the question. Is it really true that all you have to do is believe? I mean, don't you have to do something? And I tried my best to answer the question then and there, but here's the answer. Yes, all you have to do is believe, but if you truly believe, that means you will obey. You can believe in the law of gravity, but that has to determine how you live your life. If you, if you truly believe the law of gravity, you'll take the stairs, not the window. Right? Your, your belief means that you follow a certain law. It changes the way that you live. So if you believe in Jesus, it requires obedience. It's not just intellectual. Belief is equated with obedience. Also notice in verse 36 how eternal life is in the present tense. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you make that decision today to get off wrath road so that the wrath of God would no longer remain on you, if you chose to get on the way of life, eternal life is not something that you look forward to when you die or when Christ returns. No, eternal life starts now. Jesus will say later in the gospel in John 17, this is eternal life that you may know God, that you can live in a relationship with God, experience eternal life right now. Now, and loved ones, here's the amazing thing. If you have eternal life right now, if you have the Holy Spirit right now, if you have forgiveness right now, if you have meaning right now, if you have purpose right now, if you have Jesus right now, why are you envying after other things? Because if you've got him, you have everything. 
And so, Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you gave your son so that we could have eternal life, that we could have forgiveness, that we could have your spirit, so that we could have your son. So, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit right now, Lord, if there's anyone here who is on the broad road that leads to destruction, Lord, I pray that as they leave this place, that the wrath of God would not remain on them, that they would acknowledge their sin before you and repent and ask you for forgiveness and believe that Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, to fight against envy, to fight against competition and comparison, that we would look to you and that we would declare Lord, that because we have you, we have everything. Because we have eternal life right now, that we have enough, Lord. Because you have poured out your spirit without measure. So Lord, we love you and thank you. Fill this place with your praise and worship and adoration.